Here we go. So, hopefully everybody had a good week. Um, let's get started. Uh, this week, it's a really great topic. It's the importance of holiness, personal holiness especially. Um, so as we get started, let's pray for our time together. Lord, we thank you so much for, again, meet, being able to meet here, gather in your church, gather together in fellowship to glorify your name. I pray that this morning we glorify you in uh, the way that we listen and study and gain knowledge and wisdom of what your word says and wants from us. Lord, give us the strength to do this and follow your commands as that we can only do it through you. And we thank you again for this time. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the first three weeks, uh, let's start with a brief reminder and what we've been doing up till now. So week one, we started by setting out a definition of discipleship, if you remember. Uh, the, it's the intentional encouragement of Christians on the basis of deliberate, loving relationships and training in God's word. Intentional or deliberate is the operative word here. It doesn't happen passively, if we remember, we talked about that. And we also talked about how you will be a conduit for the truth, passing it on to others what God has given you. So week two, we thought about reasons why we should disciple, for your joy and for God's glory. We're surprised by the first reason because we could have assumed having joy in this might be a little selfish, but we saw from Paul's example that he found great joy in the fruit of discipling that came from his work in the ministry of others. We also wanted to be careful not to make this about us, but to put the focus in the right place, and that's for God's glory. That's the most important thing. So he is the one who will sow the seeds in people's hearts so he will reap a harvest. We are simply privileged to be a, a part of that and a means that God uses to help others. Amen? And then last week, we thought about some barriers and excuses and fears in discipling. Remember some of these examples uh, that we talked about last week is, I don't want to be in a position of authority. I don't have time. Um, in each case, we came to see how the Bible dismantles our, our excuses and fears and redirects us to live without excuses. Um, for the next few weeks now, we're going to start narrowing our focus a bit as we study specific aspects of discipling, like studying scripture together, reading a good book together, ministering to hurting people, and, and so forth. Today, though, we want to look at how discipling can produce personal holiness in the lives of both people in the discipling relationships. So my goal for our time together this morning is that we understand the place that holiness has in, in the discipleship relationship and that we think together practically at how we can encourage personal holiness. So the ultimate goal of discipling is obedience. So let's start by thinking about the importance of obedience in the Christian life. Above everything else, discipling finally comes down to obedience to Christ's words and commands. If you boil it all down, it's obeying God's commands. And that's the great goal of discipling. A person can read all the Christian books in the world or pray with an older Christian every day, but if there's not real change in their life marked by growing obedience to Christ, then that person is very likely not a disciple. 
Discipling is not, it's not simply about behavior change or behavior modification, but, how, but about changed hearts that lead to changed lives. Okay, so anybody can just change their behavior if they're, if they're around enough people, but if, if it doesn't affect the heart, what are we doing? You know, so we have to make sure that that's happening. So two reasons why obedience is an important goal of any discipling relationship. First, obedience, it's important because God is glorified through the way we live. God is glorified in our lives as we display his character to the world around us, not only by what we say, but by how we live. If we call ourselves Christians, but live in a way that is clearly contrary to God's character, then we misrepresent God to those around us. So Philippians 1, 9 through 11 says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So why is Paul so eager for their love for Christ to grow or abound? And the, the note here is the, the connector is so that. So when we read that, so that you may approve what is excellent. So when we read so that, it, so that, it denotes the, the purpose that's coming right afterwards. So, so that they can discern what is best, so they can say no to sin, so they have discernment, and be pure and blameless, which is that is they can be holy. And what is the overarching goal of these things? It's to the glory and praise of God. Very simple. Again, what you see is greater love resulting in greater obedience. The two are very, very closely linked. So in, if the way we live commends the gospel that we profess, then we will bring glory to God and provide a powerful witness to the truth of the gospel to those around us. And regeneration is finally about glorifying God. It's not about glorifying self. So second, obedience is important because it is a mark of true Christians. Obedience springs forth from those who love God. Jonathan Edwards spends a great deal of time considering all the marks of conversion that attend the work of the Spirit in the Great Awakening when there's regeneration. In the end, he finally concluded that here it is, growth in personal holiness over time was the most universal and most reliable evidence of a true work of the Spirit. Do you guys agree with that? Because anybody can say that they're a Christian. Anybody can say, hey, I now know Jesus. But if there's not continual growth and obedience and love for Christ, then you can kind of see the proof is in the pudding, right? It's fruit. So it's the same for us today. It's no different. An, inter an, an internal change, which is the love for Christ, should manifest itself in an external change of life, which is greater obedience. If we think about John 14, 15, it says, if you love me, what does he say? you will keep my commandments. There's an inescapable link between our love for Christ and our obedience to Christ. Our love for Christ births us, births in us a desire to please him. So if we truly are regenerate and have the Holy Spirit living in us, our greatest desire will be to do Christ's will. 
First John chapter one, verses three through six says, that, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We just went through 1 John not too long ago, so hopefully that's somewhat still fresh in our minds. So how do we know we are in Christ? Very simply, it is by our obedience. What does John say about the person who says, I know Christ, and yet does not obey his commands? That person is a liar. It's straight from scripture. That may sound like a harsh statement, but it is important for us to know that the final test of Christianity is a changed life marked by increasing, increasing personal holiness. So this means that one reason we want to help someone else live a life that is characterized by greater obedience is because that obedience would give them an opportunity to show the love that they have for God, providing assurance of their salvation as well. Obviously, that obedience doesn't make them a Christian, but it shows us about what resides within their heart as well. So does this maybe kind of sound backwards? If I see a field of flowers and I want to make it bigger and brighter, I don't go about doing that by like massaging the leaves and painting them to brighten the colors of the petals. Of course not. I water and tend the plants. You care for them knowing that if the plants are healthy, brighter flowers will grow. Just as nutrients and water are needed to produce bigger and brighter flowers, so also faith is the source of obedience. And if faith is the source of obedience, why are we talking so much about holiness and obedience? Shouldn't we be talking about faith instead? So if someone is a Christian, then they will obey, then they will obey God. That's true, and yet a part of your responsibility as a discipler is to help them grow in their obedience to God, too. So what's the point, you say? They are going to do it anyway if they are a Christian. True, God will cause his true children to produce true fruit, and yet perhaps God can use you to help bring about that fruit of obedience. You can be a means by which God uses to help foster greater obedience in their life. That's why. So in addition, it's important for us to realize that we're not aiming for merely external changes, nor mere internal theological knowledge. We're aiming to encourage an internal growth and knowledge that spills over into more godly living, for greater love for Christians and the lost, and a holiness of life that evidences a changed and maturing heart. Truth is no good if it lives in an ivory tower and nobody can get to it. It must evidence itself in the way it changes that, uh, the way we live. So fostering a renewed heart and a redeemed life. There is a seeming paradox here that is important to get our hands around if we're ready to be effective and helpful discipling others. Uh, we recognize that true repentance and obedience is something that God alone can produce. And yet he calls us to help encourage the holiness of our brothers and sisters in Christ Remember, you are but a conduit of God's work in that person's life. 
So it shouldn't come as any surprise that you are primarily helping to foster something in them that God has already promised to do. The joy of discipling is seeing God accomplish his promised work through you, not doing something that God could never have accomplished on his own without your help. We have to understand that. So please remember, though, it's also not your goal, it, uh, that your goal is not behavior modification. We want to make that clear, but maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ, God's glory. If a person makes changes to their behavior simply to please you, then you have neither succeeded in glorifying God, nor have you shown them how to express love for Christ through obedience. Nor have you helped them achieve true assurance of their salvation either. But if you can help them identify areas in their life for, where increased obedience is needed, and if you can provide encouragement and wisdom in that task, then you have helped them in a way that will serve them as well. So before we go on to the next point, is there any questions so far about what we've covered? Hopefully it's clear it's not behavior modification. It's for God's glory. It's for growing in love and obedience, increasing faith in others. Okay. So next point, encouraging holiness in the disciple. So how is it that we can encourage holiness in the life of someone we're discipling? So let's start by identifying, differentiating um, between what happens immediately and what becomes a gradual process when someone becomes a Christian. So the Bible talks about several things that can change immediately upon someone's conversion. So first verse is John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus says that the status of, a, of the person changes immediately. There's a change of outlook on life and a new hope in God's promise of, of salvation that can make an enormous difference in the way a personal, person handles hardship almost immediately. Um, Mark 1.8 says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One of the things that happens immediately upon conversion is that the Holy Spirit takes residence in us. As a result, we will be much more convicted about sin if we truly have the Spirit, and our conscience will be more tender to sin. Mark 2.5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven immediately. Our sins are immediately forgiven, which is another immediate effect of conversion. Truth, the truth can be the source of a new optimism about life or gratitude towards God. So when a person is converted, his or her identity completely changes. Their nature changes. They are newly justified, newly converted disciples of Christ. He is no longer what he once, what, what he once was, but now he has a new status, a new life, and a new joy in Christ. And, that's, and that takes place right away. <clears throat> Excuse me. This does not mean, though, that all of his if other bad habits and cravings will magically vanish. We all wish that would happen, but that's not, what, that's not the case. And so look closely sometime at Romans 6. It's a wonderful passage about the Christian's power over sin. 
And it's interesting to see, though, that Paul never says a word about temptation being taken away. So we must note that. The same idea is spoken of in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Even after we are Christians, the sinful nature still wars against us. As Christians, though, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us increasingly defeat sin and, and resist it. And what's the best way to fight temptation if we look at Jesus' model? God's word. It's scripture. After fasting for 40 days, he's in the desert, and that's when the devil comes to tempt him. And what does he do every single time? It's God's word. It's scripture. So disciples often go about things in a backwards way. We often want to see bad habits and cravings disappear immediately in, the, in those that we are discipling. And we can't expect that. That's not a good expectation. Expect to see God's spirit working effectively to take away those cravings and habits over some period of time. <clears throat> Theologians refer to this as, as progressive sanctification, our gradual and increasing conformity to Christ-likeness. The change that may be rapid and dramatic, the, the, the change can be rapid and dramatic, or it may be slow and, and sometimes halting. You're like, man, what's, I don't see anything going on. So God doesn't promise that it will always be one way or the other, but he does promise that it will happen. So don't give up or be discouraged if it doesn't happen immediately, okay? So rather, what you're looking for in a disciple of Christ is growing character, which can be defined as moral strength or constitution. Romans 5, verses 3 and 4 tells us how character is developed, and here it is. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that what does it produce? It produces endurance. And endurance produces character. Character produces hope. In our hardships and struggles, even with sin, God is developing character in us. And why does character produce hope? <clears throat> because as we see God's unfail unfailing faithfulness in bringing us through hardship, we learn to rely on him more and more. Is that true? I hope so, yes. <clears throat> Remember, the goal here is not behavior modification because that will never achieve the goals we have of bringing glory to God and providing assurance of salvation. All that does is give us personal pride. Your goal is to gently and lovingly work to help strengthen the moral character of the person you are discipling so that on their own, they can joyfully live life to the pleasure and glory of God. So very practically, how do we encourage holiness in the lives of those we disciple? First and foremost, there's a, here's a list of them. We pray. Pray that God would give them, would give you insight into their struggles with sin and wisdom regarding how you can be of help to them. Prayer is a much overlooked thing that we must do. Not only in our personal lives, but for those of others as well. Second, make scripture Make sure, sorry, make sure that you discuss models of obedience in Scripture or various biblical commands. You also discuss how your lives compare. The Bible is the best diagnostic tool you have to help that other person see sin in their life, so we must use it. We must use Scripture. 
Thirdly, do not shy away from sharing concerns that you have about various aspects of their life. Sometimes sin is clear, and it is your job to confront your friend with the reality of what they are doing. Those are hard conversations. So, I mean, you can ask them questions. Did you, do you understand from Scripture that lying is sinful, but you continue to lie to so-and-so? You continue to lie to your boss. You can continue to lie to your kids or your spouse. Are you willing to change and stop living that way? Conversations of discipling. Yay, right? <clears throat> As often the case, however, things sometimes are not clear. Sometimes you may suspect that there is a sinful attitude behind some action, but you can never be certain, though it may be uncomfortable and though you may be wrong. As a brother or sister in Christ in a close relationship with the person, it is your responsibility to ask them hard questions and be willing to talk to them about it. As you do that, however, remember that you do not know the motives of their heart or have a picture perfect of how, uh, a perfect picture of how they live their life. In humility, explain that while God alone knows the state of their heart before him, from your perspective, the way that they are described in a particular situation or response of others to a particular action has made you concerned and that there may be an underlying sinful attitude. We always want to be gauging the heart and seeing where they're coming from and, and their motivation and actions and why they did it. So, and then discuss with them whether they came to the same conclusion as they are honest about their heart before God. Sometimes the issue is not that the state of their heart is unclear, it's that their action is not necessarily sinful, but just merely unwise. This seems to show up a lot in dating relationships and some issues, uh, and some issues in finances. Perhaps they are spending too much time alone when they are tempting themselves sexually. Perhaps they spend lavishly on things that seem somewhat foolish. So obviously you are not their parent. You are not the thought police. But as someone who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, I think it is good to share with them the wisdom and experience that God has given you in these situations. Remind them that our goal as Christians is not simply to avoid sin, but to seek obedience and wisdom. And, and warn them of the potential consequences of continuing down the path that they are on. This is, this is what we call being above reproach, guys acting in a way that no one will be able to accuse you of sin, being aware of potential dangers and pitfalls for sin before you put yourself in any given situation. That's just wisdom, but we need to increase in it continually because we all have blind spots, don't we? So fourthly, to the extent that God is doing good things in your life, do not shy away from using yourself as an example. We know that we're not perfect, but your life may be incredibly useful as a model to flesh out principles of scripture in a very practical format. Give credit to God for the good things that he has done in you and let him use those good works to encourage other Christians, always being careful to give glory and honor to God. And it works the other way too, where you can use yourself an example of what not to do. Like, hey, I've done what you're doing and this was the result and it didn't work out well. Yes? 
Experience does play a big part in it and sanctification in what God has done in your life. So give credit to God for the good things, take responsibility for the bad things, and then use the glory of God in the bad things of what he did and lifted you up and sanctified you, okay? Fifth, try as much as possible to ensure that what, whoever you disciple is under the authority of a local church and preferably the one that you go to. Um, one elder gives an example from another church. It's from uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. He wrote about the following, about the value of a local church in discipling. And here's his quote. Twice in my life, I have discipled individuals who became entangled in scandalous, unrepentant sin. In one situation, that individual didn't at first agree that what they were doing was sinful. We had long talks together and with other Christian friends who I knew he respected. But ultimately, because he was not a member of a local church, at the end of the day, all I could do was offer my sober opinion. In the second situation, the individual again did not agree that what he was doing was sinful, at least not initially. But I was not on my own because he was a member of my church. And so I had help from others in the congregation, from the elders, and finally from the church as a whole as they exercised church discipline by excluding them from membership. That was a discouraging and difficult experience, but I knew that where my efforts ended, they were backed up by the stronger authority of an entire community of believing Christians. Church discipline is an important backstop as you encourage people on towards personal holiness. So that was, that was his quote. And I, I'm not suggesting that you should view yourself as the holiness police, that is not the case here. Or that your job is to nitpick every detail. That gets old quick. For some of you, it may be a great temptation to exercise high-handed control over the life of someone else. And for you, this is something that you need to address in your own life, lest you inflict damage on others. Remember that the author of Hebrews tells us to consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not exasperate and or criticize each other to holiness. There's a big difference there, okay? Holiness in the discipler, next, next topic. Clearly, one way you can avoid having an unhealthy attitude in discipling is that you too should be growing in holiness. And as you do, God will likely use you as a profitable example in the life of those who you are discipling. After all, how does a disciple learn what it looks like to be holy? So look at John 13, 15, and this is what Christ says to his disciples, for I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Jesus modeled everything the disciples needed to know about holiness. He not only told them how to be holy, he showed them how to be holy. In the same way, we as disciples must also be holy in order to set an example to those we are discipling. So let's look at a, uh, three or four passages here. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3, 17 says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. First Thessalonians 1 6 says, and you become, I'm sorry, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So this is Paul, all four times, and his example to believers. Paul expected others to follow his example. Why? Because he followed Christ. And is that something that is unique to just that apostle? No, not at all. So if we read Titus 2.7, here Paul tells Timothy to set an example for the younger men. Be an example. And now if we read 1 Timothy 4.12, again, he tells Timothy, a young man, to set an example for other believers. So we have this model throughout Scripture. So being an example for others is every Christian's duty. And one of the most important ways that we teach and learn about holiness. Because what, how did we start this class? Love for Christ and obedience of his commands. If you love me, you will keep my commands. So how are we examples by doing that? and showing that to others. So if we follow Christ's example, he didn't just tell them how, he showed them how. Paul did the same, he told Timothy to do the same as he was discipling him. So what are some ways to make sure that we, we remain holy in our lives? Um, just a few examples, regular church attendance, regular personal time with the Lord, prayer and scripture, regular reading about the character of God in his word, Regular accountability to other Christians in your church. Being transparent, that's tough for a lot of us. And lastly, regular effort to serve others, especially those in the church. Service. Being an example does not mean that we will always do the right thing. It does not. We are not perfect. After all, we are still in sin. The process of being made holy is still happening in in every discipler. So it means, though, that even if when we sin, the younger Christian sees how we handle that sin. It's another tough one. Do we laugh it off? Or is it a serious matter? They're going to follow your example. Do we make amends or hope no one says anything? Sure, this makes us vulnerable, vulnerable but there is no better way for a young Christian to learn than by watching us strive to be holy. We have to admit our faults. We have to repent from sin and ask for forgiveness from others. That's the model that, that is set before us. So as we wrap up, Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 9, says, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do not, or so they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I disciple my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul emphasizes our perseverance in the Christian life here. Run in such a way as to get the prize. He wants us to make it to the very end. I don't know if you've ever heard of those who have cared for others well, have been fruitful in discipling others. 
And yet, in the end of the story, they don't finish the race. It's heartbreaking. So we cannot let that be us. While their holiness is important, yours is incredibly important. You cannot neglect your own personal holiness before you start pouring into others. It is critical to your Christian walk and to your testimony. How will you disciple others when your witness to others is poor? You can only fake it for so long. Eventually, the truth does come out. So let that truth be that you were obedient to God and loved him by following him. Amen? So as a summary, growing in personal holiness is a primary goal of our encouragement in discipling relationships. Secondly, a faithful discipler will specifically encourage greater holiness in any friend being discipled. And lastly, growing in holiness is essential for all Christians, disciple and discipler alike. So is there any questions before we pray? Any comments? Any, any little wisdom nuggets that people want to give us what they've experienced? What to do, maybe what not to do? I have a lot of those. Yeah, so the question is for the recording um, what do we do when we see something and we don't have a great rapport with somebody? Uh, what do we do? And the answer is you talk to them. Um, you are one in Christ. You are all submitting to the same word. You are all submitting to the same God. So with scripture and love and humility, you go to that person, say, I know I don't know you great, but maybe that's the starting point of it. And that's kind of hard to start that way, but we are all required to hold one another accountable, all of us, not just the people that we know well. So if we see something or maybe observe something that you're like, it's a little tough, I would go talk to that person. Just because you don't know them doesn't mean they're not a Christian and we're called to submit to scripture. And so if that's the authority, you're not the authority, I'm not the authority, if we use scripture, and say, this is what the Bible says, this is what I see, is this accurate? And then with humility, go to them and love with grace. Um, and then hopefully by, by way of the Spirit and by Scripture, they are convicted. That they can go down that path very easily. Very easily, yes. When <clears throat> we've all heard the example, there's no Lone Ranger Christian. Um, the coal that gets taken away from the fire and put on the side, it, it burns out quickly, it grows cold. Um, it's, it's the same example. We have to hold each other accountable. We have to love one another enough to have the hard conversations and hold each other accountable. So the lack of church attendance is always a good indicator. Um, the, not answering the phone, not wanting to be held accountable. That's, that's, uh, those are pretty good ones. That's right. So the, the, the Christian walk is a daily endeavor and you put on the armor of God every single morning, right? As your feet hit the floor, his mercies are new every morning. Um, we have to remember that and encourage one another in that because if, if we're not getting encouragement and we're getting down on ourselves, um, the devil's real good at that. Is keeping you focused on what yourself, right? Yeah. And, and what maybe you 
think you where you should be in life and where you're not. I mean, it, one thing after another keeps your focus on self and discontentment. Um, and, and on that point, Kristen, when if we don't have a good rapport with people, I mean, there's example after example of people going out in a missionary field and meeting another Christian for the first time in a country that they've never been to, and they have that camaraderie because you're the same spirit. They share that, and you know it. So, And then you can immediately hold each other accountable as you endeavor for the time that you have together. So anything else on personal holiness, on holiness as a discipler or a disciplee? <clears throat> Yeah, Paul. Yeah, what what Paul said for for those that are listening, um, as you disciple and endeavor to pour into someone else, what really happens is your own personal sanctification. Because <laughs> as you're discipling someone, you should be getting um, convicted and, and molded in, into Christ's image through Scripture. And if you're going to be telling someone that, you better be living it out. And you can't do that on your own. And you all have to depend, including myself, the, the strength of Christ, to follow his commands. You can only follow his commands by his strength. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just do it every day. So that's a great comment. Yeah, it's not all bad. It's, um, it may be hard, but it's not bad. It's great. It's good. It's for your good, for your joy, and for whose glory. God's glory, not ours. Anything else, beloved? Thanks for being here. This is a good one. Personal holiness, sanctification. So um, let me pray and we'll, we'll end our time together. Lord, we thank you for this topic. We thank you for, my goodness, your scripture, your word that you have given us. We thank you for the word made flesh in your son Christ. And not only him talking about what personal holiness is, and, but modeling it for us. Showing us how to live as he wants us to live. Lord, help us daily remind ourselves that your grace abounds. That your mercies are new every morning. That you give us strength when we ask for it. That you give us wisdom when we ask for it. And encouragement from others when we need it. Lord, thank you for the body. Thank you for your church and that we can be here learning about the truths of your scripture. Lord, help us take it to heart. Please help us apply these things to our lives as Christians and to be able to be discipled and to disciple others. Lord, help us and convict us of our personal holiness and sanctification as we endeavor to do these things. And we thank you for everything that you've done in our lives and are doing as well. We pray this in your son's name, amen.